So we are coming to the end of our exploration of the United Church of Christ's statement of faith, this campfire that lights the center of our community. Not a fence that defines our boundaries, a campfire that lights our center. We have considered who God is, the eternal spirit who is present and active in our world. We have considered what God wants to rescue and heal us, to give us victory over sin, to lead us down the right path, the path that leads to shalom, peace and salvation for all of creation. We have considered how God does that by coming to us in the person of Jesus, revealing exactly what God's love is like, suffering the full weight of evil of the world and overcoming it in resurrection. Last week, we considered what the Holy Spirit does, binds us together, all of us, gathering our variety of differences into one dazzling bouquet for God's glory, giving us the creativity and the courage to be the church in our time and place. And this morning, we consider, what is the church? What is the purpose of the church? So let's hear the whole statement again. We believe in God, the eternal spirit, who is made known to us in Jesus, our brother, and to whose deeds we testify. God calls the worlds into being, creates humankind in the divine image, and sets before us the ways of life and death. God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. God judges all humanity and all nations by that will of righteousness declared through prophets and apostles. In Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, our crucified and risen Lord, God has come to us and shared our common lot, conquering sin and death and reconciling the whole creation to its creator. God bestows upon us the Holy Spirit, creating and renewing the church of Jesus Christ, binding in covenant, faithful people of all ages, tongues, and races. And here's this week's. God calls us into the church to accept the cost and the joy of discipleship to be servants in the service of the whole human family, to proclaim the gospel to all the world and resist the powers of evil, to share in Christ's baptism and eat at his table, to join him in his passion and victory. So last week, the Holy Spirit creates and renews the church. This week, God calls us into the church. God calls us into something that already exists and that expands as God calls us into it. The church. Capital C. Not Zion. Not the UCC. Not the American church. Not even the Protestant church. But the church. Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, progressives, conservatives, those who baptize by sprinkling babies, those who baptize by dunking grown-ups, 
Those whose communion table is open and those whose communion table is closed. Those who play pipe organs, those who play electric guitars, those who sing a cappella, and all the many, many, many ways that we understand the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. The church. All of us together. The people we agree with and the people we do not agree with. The church. All of us together as one. Bound together as Christ's body whether we like it or not. The church. What the heck is it for? I have to admit to you, I've struggled with this. Even though the statement is very clear. We together, the church, are servants in service to the whole human family to proclaim the gospel and resist the power of evil. That's the part you probably want me to talk about. But that's the part that's bothering me. Because that's the part that is so subjective. How are we to be servants? How do we proclaim the gospel? How do we resist the power of evil? And friends, if I stand up here this morning and I answer those questions in a very specific way, I will be doing exactly what the statement is designed not to do. Remember, this statement is designed to make room. And if I stand up here and say, here are the things you need to do to be a servant. Here are the right words to use when proclaiming the gospel. Here is what is evil in the world and how to resist it. If I do that, then I will be limiting your own holy imaginations and the way that the Holy Spirit may be whispering or shouting to you to do something completely different from what I said. Because what we don't like to admit is that there are many faithful ways to serve. There are many faithful ways to proclaim the gospel. There are many faithful ways to resist evil. And some of them look very different from each other. In this time in history especially, we want our ways to be recognized as the right way. If everyone would just do what we think is the right thing to do, then everything would be fine. Honestly, that's what I think. Just vote like me, think like me, buy like me, pray like me, understand Jesus like me, and we'll be fine, because I got it figured out. The hardest thing about being called into the church is admitting that grown-up Christians who love Jesus are going to make different choices, which we say is fine until it's the choice we don't want them to make, and then we're mad. I am. So, let me tell you what I've been thinking about this week instead. I have been thinking about the other parts of this section. Specifically, God calls us into the church to accept the cost of discipleship. And God calls us into the church to join Christ in his passion. 
Those are not things that progressive Christians usually like to hear. We want to hear the other parts, that God calls us to accept the joy of discipleship and join Christ in his victory. And with good reason. Because it's possible that many of you grew up hearing a lot about the cost and a lot about the passion and not enough about the joy and the victory. But can we please not just switch sides? Can we please not just make the same mistakes on the other side of the theological aisle? Can we be honest and humble and try to find the balance? In 1945, one of the millions of people executed by the Nazis was a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have heard of him. He was only 39, younger than I am, but older than Jesus. Same age as Dr. King when he was executed. This 39-year-old pastor was a leader in the confessing church, which were the Christians who resisted allegiance to Hitler. This young pastor who led a renegade seminary, which sounds like the greatest thing ever to me. This young pastor who was a double agent went calmly to his death, spending his last hours encouraging other prisoners. And we know his name and his story in part because before he died, he wrote several books. And one of them is called The Cost of Discipleship in which he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without any church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without contrition. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will gladly go and sell all they have. Costly grace is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves their nets, and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life, and it is grace because it gives us our only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And then he says this, We have poured forth endless streams of grace, but the call to follow Jesus was hardly ever heard. God calls us into the church to accept the cost and the joy of discipleship. This the church is not simply a social club. At its best, this is a training ground for people who want to be serious about following Jesus to change the world in whatever way the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. 
A true acceptance of the grace that we have received from God compels us to discipleship, to following Jesus. Jesus promises us abundant life, but he does not promise that it will be easy. Easy is not the same as abundant. I think I'm feeling so serious about this, guys, because I am so exhausted by the world. I know it's my job to be the hopeful one in this bunch, and as a general rule, I am. But does anyone else feel like we just cannot catch a break? I mean, we have it, we have it really good here compared to Haiti and Afghanistan, and I'm still worn out and discouraged and resentful and sad. And you know what? I don't think God is disappointed in me for that. And I'm not afraid to tell you that sometimes I feel that way. Because this morning's section also says that God calls us into the church to join Christ in his passion, in his suffering. Part of what we are supposed to do as the body of Christ is to be vulnerably together in our suffering. See, the American church does an incredibly poor job of this. In the 250 years that we have been building this country, we have confused the gospel of Jesus Christ with the American dream. If we read the gospels and the letters of the New Testament, nobody promises us an easy life. Nobody promises us that we will have it better than our parents did, or even better than we ourselves did five years ago, or 18 months ago. Nobody promises us health and wealth. Nobody promises us that we will always get the victory over everything that troubles us individually. Nobody promises us that things are always going to go well. In fact, what we are promised over and over again is that we are going to suffer. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, In this world you will face suffering. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. What we find over and over again is that our suffering is an opportunity for us to draw closer to Christ to be ever more conformed to his image. And we know that's true because we know that we do not experience tremendous personal growth in the easy times of life, do we? I wish we did. It'd be so much better. But we grow when things are hard. Plants grow best in, shall we say, fertilizer. Some of you got that. Thank you. God call, it's a, we're, on, we're online, I can't. God calls us into the church to join Christ in his passion. To be people who face suffering with steadfast hearts. Who cling to Jesus in those moments. 
trusting that like Peter walking on the water, if we are clutching Jesus' hand, we will not be pulled under the waves. And how do we do that? Well, friends, we do it in the church. We do it in community. And I know we are Americans, and so we want to do it alone. Anybody ever has a toddler that says, I can do it myself? But honestly, we can't. I can't. God calls us together into the church to all of us together accept the cost of discipleship and join Christ in his passion together as one, drawing support when we need it, which means we have to admit that we need it. Offering support when we feel least like we have anything left in our tank. Showing up, not just for ourselves, because we know that our presence makes a difference for someone else. Getting through the hard stuff together. Because together is where the magic happens. Together is where the spirit shows up. We said it in our, this morning in our gathering prayer, where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he is here with us. Together. Because we are willing to accept the cost of discipleship, together we will also experience the joy. Together, because we are willing to join Christ in his passion, we will also experience his victory. As we share in his baptism and eat at his table, not in a moment of private devotion, but as an act of corporate worship. As we share in his baptism and eat at his table, as we sing, as we pray, as we listen to one another and the Holy Spirit, we will become the church. Servants in service to the whole human family, proclaiming the gospel and resisting the powers of evil together. Amen. This morning, as our time of reflection, I want to share with you a scripture that I have been pondering all week that I thought was so wrong for this morning. And I didn't know why I felt so drawn to it until Friday morning, Friday morning when I got some bad news. One more thing I was looking forward to moved online because of the Delta variant. I was just done. But as I sat in the back pew of the sanctuary, where Peg O'Brien sat, as I sat there and cried, because I did, as I leaned into that suffering and asked Jesus to meet me and to help me, I received this sermon. There's no other way to say it to you. All the pieces that I had been pondering, the Bonhoeffer and this scripture and not talking about servants and service to the whole human family, it all made sense. And maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning. It's possible. But I trust 
that this is the word for all of us together this morning. So in this moment, I invite you to take a deep breath. To find a place of serenity in your own body. Stand up if you need to. Lie down on the ground. Hold somebody's hand. Let go of somebody's hand. We don't care. But would you unclench your jaw? Would you drop your shoulders down from your ears? Would you open your hands and put both of your feet flat down and be grounded into the earth? And would you take a deep breath? You may want to close your eyes to block out distractions or you may want to gaze up into the tree. But let us listen now in the reading of scripture for the word and the wisdom of God and then we'll just be quiet for a minute. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of the church, by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glorious Jesus Christ, who is the likeness of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this extraordinary power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work at us, but life is at work in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith as the one who wrote, I believed and so I spoke, we too believe and so we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
for it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed every day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. And amen.